Why don't we pray? Lord, we declare this as your time, and we want to see this time as an investment in our spiritual growth. Now, many of us have gone through the Bible. We've certainly read this section. It's familiar territory. And yet, Lord, I pray that it would be like seed that falls upon fresh and fertile soil tonight, that our hearts would be moved by the greatest love story ever told, Jesus Christ, God's Son, sinless, paying for our sins and the penalty upon his body on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would remove it from a stained glass setting and we would see it in its original context, especially how that Jesus was a man of the streets, a man of the common person that anyone could relate to. Father, I pray that we would be motivated by what we read. In Jesus' name, amen. It is ironic that the greatest, let me rephrase that, that the most diabolical crime ever committed by humanity was at the same time the greatest blessing. From two different perspectives, the cross of Jesus Christ shows both the wicked heart of man, the sinful heart of man, at the same time it shows the loving heart of God, both wrapped up in one. This is no doubt what Peter had in mind when in Acts chapter 2 he preached to the crowds in Jerusalem and said concerning Jesus, him being delivered by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God you, by your wicked hands, have crucified and slain. From one perspective, God gave his son to the world. From the other perspective, man's perspective, they took by lawless or wicked hands and crucified and slain him. It exposed the wickedness of man, but it also exposed the deep love of God for man. Now, we read last week how that Jesus faced the trial, the Sanhedrin, or part of his trial, and uh, he declared himself in verse 70 to be the Son of God. They saw this as blasphemy, and now they want to take it to the Roman authorities. Chapter 23 is Jesus' road to the cross. Even as we pray, this is so familiar to us that I wonder if some of us have lost the impact of the cross. I wonder if some of us don't have a been there, done that, been there, heard that attitude. We've heard it said familiarity can breed contempt. I'm sure you don't have a heart of contempt for it, but I wonder if it's just old hat. We should tread softly and sensitively on this ground. It is holy ground. And the cross is never to be taken lightly. In one sense, I feel like just reading it without commenting on it, it's so precious. It defies any kind of description. But nonetheless, we want to just uncover it stone by stone. If you were to ask people about the cross, what is the cross? What does it mean? There was a poll recently done. I don't have the exact statistics. I just, I think, saw it on a news clip on television. 
There were many people in this research, especially the baby buster age, that did not know that the cross was the symbol of Christianity. Yet that would probably be what most people would say if you were to say, what is the cross? Oh, that's the symbol of a religion. If you were inclined historically, you might say, well, that was a cruel form of torture and death invented by the Persians. But from a biblical perspective, the cross is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. You've seen the bumper sticker or heard the saying, I asked Jesus how much he loved me. He opened his arms and said this much, speaking of dying on the cross. In the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, Paul points out this. He said, Rarely for a righteous man would one dare to die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's the ultimate description of love. It's not stepping in for a good person or a righteous person. You don't deserve it. But while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, God sent his son to pay for our sins. And Paul made that the focus of his ministry, did he not? I am determined, he said, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. William Barclay said, the cross of Jesus Christ shows that there is no length that the love of God will refuse to go to win the lives of men. And then he said, if the cross of Jesus Christ will not stir up your heart, then nothing else will. And so we see now this road to the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross, well, we know voluntarily, he laid down his life for the sins of the world. It was by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why? Well, he answered that question when Nicodemus asked how he can be born again. The most common verse in the New Testament, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. That's why he went to the cross. To secure your salvation and my salvation. That from that point forward, anyone who would believe, trust in, rely on, adhere to, is what the word means, in Jesus Christ, would not have to perish, but could have freely given to them everlasting life. Well, how was that done exactly? You say, I don't understand how that works. It works by transference. It works by imputation. All of the sins, past, present, and future, were transferred upon Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect, God in human flesh, so that righteousness, the righteousness of that singular person, Jesus Christ, could be imputed to you. So he took your guilt and God gave to you the righteousness of Christ. So God declares you righteous. You say, well, there are times when I don't feel that righteous. Well, you know what? You aren't righteous. God just declares you to be righteous. Okay? So get over that part. Well, I'm not perfect. I'm not only. God knows that. God has declared you just. It's 
what justification means. It doesn't mean you never sinned. It means God treats you as if you never sinned. It's a declaration of God by the transference or the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Now, beginning in around verse 66 on into chapter 23, it's a courtroom scene. We think of Pontius Pilate when we think of the trial of Jesus Christ, but there were many other trials that Jesus went through. But it is Pilate that went down in history with the infamous title of the one who sentenced Jesus Christ to death. What a horrible infamy to have tacked across your life, as history would record it. Um, Jesus Christ, however, is not really on trial here. Keep that in mind. I mean, it's a horrifying scene to see what Jesus goes through, but in reality, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, Herod, and the rest, they are the ones who are on trial before Jesus Christ. Pilate is going to be judged. Herod will be judged ultimately. Oh, they're making their little pontifications, but ultimately they are the one that will stand in judgment. Now, refresh your memory. Six trials Jesus went through. Three of them Jewish, three of them Roman. The first one was before Annas, the high priest. The second one was before his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the real high priest that year. The third one was in the morning before the Jewish Sanhedrin. They found him guilty, but they did not have the right of capital punishment that was taken away from the Jews by the Romans, and so they wanted to get Jesus uh, killed, and the only way they could do it is to get permission by the Roman government. So they had to make false accusations. They did so. And Jesus went through three trials by the Romans. Number one, by Pilate. Number two, by Herod. And number three, back to Pilate, where Pilate just says, look, forget this. I'll give in to whatever you guys want. And Jesus is sentenced to death. Now, there are some rules that you should be aware of. Rules for judgment of a crime. And I bring that up because the Sanhedrin broke all of their own rules. They did not keep their own law. Rule number one, no crime could be tried during Passover week. It was a holy day. It was a time to worship God and to focus on what happened in Egypt. But they broke their law. They wanted Jesus killed before Passover. Rule number two, the crime or the sentence of the crime, the, uh, the whole trial could not end the same day that it began unless the criminal were found to be not guilty. There was enough evidence that said, you know, he's uh, not guilty, then the same day he could be acquitted. But if there was the idea that he may be guilty, the law required that you had to wait a night. Just like we would say, hey, sleep on it. Don't make a harsh decision. Sleep on it. And that's basically what they did. They gave times for feelings of mercy to rise up in their souls for the prisoner so that they could not just jump and have a hasty kind of a sentence. But here we see that they broke that law as well. Now, some of them know Pontius Pilate. It seems that some of the Jewish leaders know this Roman governor and they want to get him on their side. 
And really, that's how they do it. They sort of rig this whole thing. Sort of like American law, you've heard it said perhaps that uh, if you can't find a lawyer who knows the law, then find a lawyer that knows the judge. Well, they found somebody who knew the judge. Somebody among the Sanhedrin had it in with Pilate, and so they request his presence at the trial. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee, to this place. From Pilate's perspective, his patience is not very thick. It's wearing thin for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, it is probably very early in the morning. Most scholars believe it's 5 o'clock a.m. Pilate gets woken up out of a dead sleep to hear an emergency trial of sedition. So getting up that early, he's not in a good mood. Secondly, the Gospel of John tells us that these Jews refused to enter into the courtroom or the palace of Herod there at the Antonia Fortress. They made uh, a Pilate come out on a balcony to them. And so Pilate had to get dressed in a special deal and go outside to meet them. Why? Because they didn't want to get defiled ceremonially unclean by going into the court of a Gentile. And so it's like, hey, hear our case, but you've got cooties, man. We're not coming into your house. You've got to come outside to us. So I think he's a little ticked off at this. They bring accusations. Verse 2 says there are three accusations. None of these things are political things. Really, the issue is a religious issue, and Pilate knows it. He goes, you know, he's... He didn't do anything. I find no fault in this man. But notice those accusations. Are any of those true? We found this fellow perverting the nation. Is that true? Did Jesus pervert the law? Didn't he say, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law? Uh, accusation number two, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say, hey man, forget the IRS, don't pay your taxes, just live a godly life, forget the government? No. He said, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and render to God the things that belong to God. But the third charge they were right on. The first two were false, the third one was accurate. Saying he himself is the Messiah, Christos in Greek, a king. Now that was true. He did claim to be the Messiah. The first time he did was in Samaria when Jesus was going through there. And remember the woman said, We know that the Christ, the Messiah, is coming, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said, Woman, he that speaketh to thee am he. The one that you're talking to right now is that Messiah. Then to the Sanhedrin, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. That charge they were accurate on. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, I think he went, Good, I can get out of this. 
He asked if the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So this is now the fifth trial that Jesus goes to. He's being handed from person to person, courtroom scene to courtroom scene. Herod had jurisdiction over Galilee. Jesus was from there, so Pilate sent him to Herod. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Okay, Jesus, start the magic show. I want to see what you can do. I've heard a lot of things about you. Um, is there any water you can walk on, or maybe you can multiply the food, or do a trick for me? He wanted to be amused. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Herod had silenced the voice of God in his own life. And I think it's possible to do that. It's possible where God will desire to speak to a person, but because of the hardness of a heart, God will shut down the lines of communication. It's possible to do that. It happened with the nation of Israel. There was a period of judges, and that started coming into the monarchy. And it says in the book of 1 Samuel, around the third chapter, it says, And the word of God was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. I think that's around 1 Samuel chapter 3, the verse, first two or three verses. The word of God was rare. There was no widespread revelation. The nation was closing their ears to hear God. And whenever God is silent, it indicates his judgment. When Jesus came into Jerusalem just before that final Passion Week and he overturned the tables and he was questioned by the Pharisees, they hardened their hearts. They said, tell your disciples not to say Hosanna, not to give you praise. And it has one of the most saddest verses of Scripture. It says, Jesus left them. What a horrible sentence. To be confronted with the Son of God and for Jesus to just turn around and walk out and just leave them and say nothing. Jesus said nothing to Herod. Herod was on trial before Jesus Christ. He had silenced the voice of God. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now, in sending him back to Pilate, he was sending a message. He didn't sentence him. Why? Because they weren't in Galilee. They were in Jerusalem. And Herod was in Jerusalem as well as Pilate. He was saying, look... This man is a Galilean, but I'm not in Galilee. He's in your jurisdiction, and I trust that whatever decision you make will be the right decision. Now notice what happens. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for before that they had been at enmity with each other. How sad that over the death of Jesus Christ they become friends. Over the sentencing of Jesus Christ they had been enemies. But Herod, in capitulating to Pilate, kind of mended the wounds. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and 
Indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing worthy of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary to release one of them, a one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! You know, when you don't get your way, what do kids do when they don't get their way? They cry louder. They get more incessant. You know, they, they want to see where is the line at which mom and dad will break. Mommy, I want this. No, you can't have it. Mommy, I want this. Now, if mommy gives in after a certain decibel level, the message to the child is, oh, I can go up to 50 decibels before mom will say no. And they'll do it every time. So they cried out louder, crucify him. They were insistent. Now, Pontius Pilate was an interesting character. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Let me tell you his makeup. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, the procurator, as one version calls him, from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., a total of 10 years. And uh, he was known as a man uh, of integrity at first to the Roman government. You had to really... Uh, be a person who could follow through with what Rome wanted you to do, to even be the governor. And he climbed the ladder of responsibility. And the governors of the provinces were accountable directly to the emperor in Rome. But being the governor of a place like Judea was difficult because the Jewish people don't bend to outside rule easily. Probably the toughest place in all of the Roman Empire to govern were the Jewish people. And he made some mistakes, and he's walking on thin ice already. Mistake number one he made early on when he became governor is that he had ensigns made with an inscription of the governor, excuse me, of the emperor on these ensigns, and they, the soldiers marched into Jerusalem with this image, this inscription, this superscription of the bust of Caesar on their incense. Now, according to the Jewish people, that is idolatry. You can't have an image of anything or anyone. And so they appealed to Pilate and said, please remove these things from Jerusalem. We can see them from the temple area. And that's an abomination. That's blasphemy. It's idolatry. He said, I'm not going to remove it for you guys. Get lost. Instead, he took all of the Jewish dissenters and brought them to an amphitheater. And he said, if you don't quit rebelling against my authority and bringing this up and demonstrating against me, I'm going to cut your throats with the swords of the soldiers. Thinking that they would, you know, break to the pressure. Instead, they lay down on the ground and they bared their neck. And they said, cut them. But we're not going to quit rebelling against this command. He realized the kind of people he was dealing with early on. They were ready to die for their convictions. Mistake number two is he built a water system, an aqueduct, 
from outside of Jerusalem and brought the water into Jerusalem, and he used temple treasury money to do it. He used the Jews' money to get this project accomplished. Well, this ticked off the Jews, and they leveled a formal complaint to the emperor in Rome. He heard about it, and he told them to you know, quit messing with uh, the Jewish people. But instead, Pilate hired assassins to go into the crowds while people were rioting against this and stab them, kill many of them. And so he had them assassinated. So he's, you know, again, walking on thinner ice. Number three mistake. He ordered special shields to be made, again, with now the face of Tiberius Caesar on it, for the Antonia Fortress, the elite guard of the Jews, uh, of the Romans in Jerusalem. The Jews saw it. They rebelled. They leveled again a formal complaint to Caesar in Rome, and he commanded Pontius Pilate to have them removed because they didn't want a riot of the Jews anymore. So one thing Pilate does not want is another insurrection, another complaint, another riot. John's gospel tells us when they're having this thing back and forth, he's innocent, let him go. No, crucify him. Oh, we've tried him and he's fine. They said something that I think swayed Pontius Pilate. They said, listen, if you let this man go, you are no longer a friend of Caesar's. It's like, you know, whoa, what does that mean? That's like a threat. If you let this man go, just know that you're not a friend of Caesar's. For whoever claims to be king defies the reign of Caesar. In other words, we're going to tell on you that you let a guy who claims to be our king scot-free. And we're going to make sure that we apply the pressure. And that's when he gave in to the crowd. And so we read. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He said to them the third time, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. You know, Pilate didn't want to see Jesus killed. He knew he was innocent, but he was the consummate politician. I personally, and, and I don't really want to taint you, but I don't like politicians. I don't trust them. I don't think there's any that I trust. Because it seems, just in what I've seen, that a politicians will say almost anything to get elected. They'll find out what the hot buttons are and they'll kind of dance around it. Very rarely will you find somebody who just say, excuse me, that's wrong and I'm not going to do it. I don't care what you say. This is right and this is my platform, period. And Pilate was the consummate politician. Just, hey, whatever you say, the voices of the people prevail. Now, I can all night blame Pontius Pilate for being a compromiser, but then I look at my own life. How many times have I failed? to be a witness for Jesus Christ? How many time have, times have I compromised? I know that I should say something. I know that I should make a stand. But who wants to be called a fanatic? Who wants to be seen as out of place, out of step, out of tune, out of touch with reality? The fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. And Pilate fell prey into the very same thing that we fall prey to many times. The jeering of the crowd. 
Bible says, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I pray more and more that I won't be. I pray that I will always speak the truth. And if you want to pray for something for me, pray that I'll do that. Pray that I won't compromise. And I'll pray that for you, that you'll speak the truth, that you won't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, why should you be ashamed? It's the greatest story, greatest message ever told. Oh, but there's people who don't receive it. So... I've noticed that other religious systems, Muslims, New Agers, they're not ashamed. They spread their message. Homosexuals, they're not ashamed to stand up and speak out. Why should Christians be ashamed? Pilate knew the truth, but he didn't stand up for it. And I could point my finger at him, but I as I say, have to point the finger at me as well. Pilate gave the sentence that it should be as they requested. They took Jesus and they scourged him. It says they released uh, to them, he released to them the one they requested, who for insurrection and murder, that's Barabbas, had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, uh, Pilate had him scourged, whipped, they used the Roman flagellum, sort of like a cat of nine tails, wooden handle, leather strips, pieces of lead, glass, and bone embedded into it. And they, 40 times, would, uh, with the full backswing and follow-through, lash out against the prisoner. And those bits of shell and bone and lead would grip the back of the victim and would stick into it, embed itself into the flesh. And then they would pull. And Eusebius, one of the early church historians, described in vivid detail in his account what happened during the times of persecution when Christians were beaten with the flagellum. The subcutaneous tissue was ripped. Uh, the Veins in the arteries were exposed. He even said that sometimes the cavities, the body cavities, the organs and the visceral parts were exposed to plain sight during this time. Many died even before they could be crucified. Forty lashes. Why were there forty? Well, they were intended to cause the prisoner with each whipping to confess his crime. You know, it would only take two or three of those things where you'd say, this is what I've done. If you confessed your crime, they would stop. If you didn't confess your crime, you would get the full amount, unless they were merciful. And they always said you should temper justice with mercy, so rather than 40 lashes, 39 were administered. But Jesus was not guilty. He had nothing to confess. He didn't sin, so he didn't say a word. He took the full brunt upon his back. By his stripes we are healed, the scripture says. Brutal, but it was for your healing that Jesus did that. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who, coming from a far country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus, and a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Now Simon 
was from North Africa. He had traveled 800 miles. He was one of those Jews that said, finally, I get to go to Jerusalem for Passover. It was his heart's desire to spend at least one time in Jerusalem for Passover. He made it. He traveled 800 miles. That's a long trip. You know, there's no planes, no buses, no taxis. He crossed that on foot or by horse or by donkey. He's there. It's early in the morning. He's probably got it all planned out. It's 9 o'clock or by 9 o'clock he'll be at the temple for the early sacrifice and the prayer meeting that went on. But the Romans changed his agenda. There he was in Jerusalem on the way to the temple. The Romans conscripted him to carry the cross, the patibulum, the upper level of the cross that Jesus was to take to Calvary. Now, I have a theory based upon a couple of texts of Scripture that Simon the Cyrenian was converted because of this. By what he experienced, by what he saw, this change in plan softened his heart. Because in Mark's Gospel, it identifies Simon as the father of Rufus and Alexander. And that is mentioned, uh, Mark wrote to the Romans as if the... Uh, to, implied that the Roman readers would understand who that was. You know, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander, whom Paul mentions at the end of the book of Romans as being one of the leaders in the church later on. And so probably this man sought, experienced this, converted to Jesus Christ, then he converted his sons who became leaders in the church of Jerusalem later on. Exciting possibilities. It brings up an interesting point. God can change your agenda, and I know you know that, but when he does, he's got a reason. Even if it's a horrible circumstance, I've come all this way and I have to be involved in this horrible, vicious crime. But I could recount stories to you of how people had deaths, tragedies, accidents, and how those events helped lead them to Jesus Christ. And after all, isn't that the greatest thing that could ever happen to a person? to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever and ever. And he, I think even if it takes human suffering, even if it takes departure and death, the most important thing is that we know God. A great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. I love to read the New Testament accounts of the women. Somebody said that in the New Testament, no woman was an enemy of Jesus. And that's true. He had a company of women who came and followed him and watched after him, traveled with Jesus and his disciples on their journey. It was to a woman that the good news was first announced to Mary. It was women that were last at the crucifixion scene of Jesus Christ. It was to a woman who used to be a prostitute that the resurrection was first announced. They were last at the cross. They were first at the tomb. And Christianity elevates the position of a woman to a high level as Jesus shared his ministry with them. Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nurse. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? These women were weeping over the suffering and death of one man, 
That Jesus said that, you know, the days are coming when you ought to weep for your nation. Jesus wept for the nation when he came on the Mount of Olives. He wept over Jerusalem as he foresaw the fall of the city to the hand of the Romans. And that's what he's discussing. That their children will suffer the brunt of the judgment. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So there's Jesus. He has the center cross. Two of these criminals who deserve the death penalty were on either side. That center cross should have housed Barabbas. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. Perhaps they were counterparts in the insurrection. But Jesus was innocent. And the cross that Barabbas should have hung on, Jesus is now hanging on. And they came to this place called Calvary. Now, there are three names given to this in the New Testament. Golgotha, that's Hebrew. Calvary, that's Latin. Calvarium is the Latin word for the skull. And the Greek term is cranion. Same thing, skull, cranial cavity. It is called that because the mountain or that little hill, if you look at it, you can still see it today. You can stand on the Damascus Gate and look right over at it, and you'll see the sockets, the uh, nasal bone, and what looks like to be uh, the you know, teeth. And it, you look at it from the right direction, it looks just like a skull. It's a spooky look. And because it bore that appearance, it was known as that the place of the skull. It was the place where criminals were killed. It was outside the city walls. If you go to Jerusalem with us, there's a couple of different places we can show you. One is the traditional Catholic site inside the city walls. The other is outside the city. And it's disputed, and I don't care who wins the dispute. The reason I take people to the one outside the city walls is, first of all, it is untouched. There's not a church over it. So you get the same feel. And you can see the place of the skull, the rising of the hill, the garden tomb is right over to the left of that. And it's basically untouched. They have uh, kept it like a first century uh, garden would have been in a place of execution. So you get the feel of what it was like. But Jesus was led there to be crucified. Um, when somebody was crucified, they wore a placard of their crime they carried their cross to the place of execution. That placard was taken off of the criminal and exposed upon the cross. The crimes that they committed. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was his crime. The Jews demanded that Pilate take it off. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And he placed that above Jesus Christ. Now the cross was invented by the Persians. It was adopted by the Romans. And it was one of the most cruel forms of death because it deliberately delayed death. Many of the victims lasted for days before they finally expired. Jesus lasted for hours as he hung upon the cross. Now, what did the cross look like? Well, we don't know. Some of the crosses were simply a vertical beam. The victim was roped, strapped, or nailed with his arms directly above his head on one singular beam. Other crosses were in the form of an X, where the feet were spread and the arms were spread on that X. Other crosses that have been found or described 
It's a vertical beam and then a beam on top, not in the middle, but on top, like a T, the Roman tau. Then, of course, there's the cross that is uh, depicted uh, with uh, sort of like a small T, and that's the traditional cross, but we don't exactly know what the cross looked like, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It was a place of capital punishment. It's where Jesus bore our sins, and that's the most important thing. So Jesus came to this place, and he was crucified, and there were criminals on the right and on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, but the people look, stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Roman citizens could not be crucified. The crosses were reserved for non-citizens who committed the worst kind of crime. Cicero uh, wrote in his writings, to beat a Roman citizen is unlawful, to flog a Roman citizen is an abomination, to kill a Roman citizen is an act of murder, but to crucify a Roman citizen. He said there are no words low enough to describe how abominable a crime that would be. One of the Roman senators said that the term and the thought, crucifixion, should be banished from the very thoughts of Roman minds because it was so despicable a death. And there Jesus was, suffering the worst possible kind of death for the sins of the world. Notice what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. He uttered seven sayings upon the cross. Let me see if I can get them right. First one was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The second one, to the criminal, one of the criminals crucified next to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, the third one, Woman, behold your son. Then there were three hours of darkness from 12 to 3 where Jesus said nothing. Then after that, Jesus uttered four more sayings and he finally gave up his ghost. These are the last words of Jesus before he died. You know, I, I am of the opinion that last words are very significant. Just like first words are very significant. Notice how parents are always interested in the first words. What did he say? Did he say Dada? Of course he did. He's my son. He must have said my name first, right? We're always interested in the first words. But last words are insight into the kind of life and outlook that that person had. I have a book that has several last words of unbelievers as well as the last words of believers. David Hume, the atheistic philosopher, the one who wrote so many writings against God, when he died said, I am in the flames before he died. Voltaire, the infidel and agnostic, cried out saying, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. And the nurse who attended him was a Christian. 
And she said for hours he cried out in agony through the night. And after he died, she said, all the money in Europe could be given to me and I never again want to witness the death of another unbeliever. Mahatma Gandhi, when he died, said, I am in such despair, I'm in the slough of despond, I'm in darkness. But then there are the testimonies of Christians. Richard Baxter, when he died, said, all of my pain is converted into praise. Augustus Toplady, who is the author of the song, The Rock of Ages, talked about the glories of heaven and the peace that he already experienced of eternity in his heart. And another saying, I can't recall his name off the top of my head, for the last 25 minutes said, glory, 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 glory. And what a way to die, man. What a way to die. What a difference from how a non-believer and a believer dies. I heard of two people who were dying the exact same night in the same town. One was a Christian, one was an unbeliever. As the unbeliever was dying, he kept saying, I'm leaving home, I'm leaving home, I'm leaving my home. The other one was saying, I'm going home, I'm going home, I'm going home. What a difference in perspective. If you're an unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. What a drag. I hear people all the time, well, you, you make heaven here. Really? I mean, this is it? For the Christian, the best is yet to come. Home forever. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jesus said, first of all, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Imagine that. Here's a nation that has rejected him. Here's a nation that wanted nothing to do with him. Here's a group of people who crucified him and wanted his death more than anything else. And yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For a world that rejected him, Father, forgive them. Now the Greek language indicates that this is a continuous asking. He kept on praying, Father, forgive them. He kept doing it. And so it would imply that as Jesus was walking toward the Damascus gate with the cross, Father, forgive them. As they laid him on the cross, oh, Father, forgive them. As they put the nails in his hands and his feet, Father, forgive them. And as he hung upright, Father, forgive them. It was a continual prayer. Why? Because he said they do not know what they are doing. How against human nature this is. When you've been wronged, is it your nature right off the bat to say, Oh, Father, forgive them. If Jesus would have succumbed to the temptations of human nature, he would have probably prayed, well, if you were hanging on the cross, if I was hanging on the cross, Father, judge them. Give them what they deserve. Please. How do you feel when somebody cuts in front of you in the freeway? What do you do? I pray for policemen to come. Lord, please send a policeman who saw that and get this guy arrested. I've been wronged. <laughs> but then if I do it, I say, Lord, I pray that there are no policemen around. And you do it too and you know it. <laughs> Don't look at me with that look of shock. <laughs> what words, though? Jesus could have said, oh, yeah? Just wait till after the resurrection, guys. I'll come and get you. Instead, Father, forgive them because they don't know the extent of their crime. 
They have no idea what's going on. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save you. If Jesus would have said, Okay, I've had it. I told Peter I could get 12 legions of angels in the garden. That's 72,000. Come on, guys, deliver me. Wipe these people out. He could have done that. But had he done that, all would be lost. And he couldn't save you. But because he didn't call upon the angels to rescue him, because he did remain on the cross, he can save you. The inscription was over the cross, and in verse 39, one of the criminals who hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You have to read the other gospel accounts to understand that at first both, not just one, both of these criminals spewed out insults to Jesus. Both of them, including the guy who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And if you piece it all together, what happened is both of them were angry, both of them were on the cross, and both of them hurled insults at Jesus. But then one of them, for some reason, the ice broke, his heart began to melt. He realized, I'm dying. Somebody once said, there are no atheists at death. When you die, you think a little bit differently. And I've seen cleverly agnostic and atheistic people get suddenly religious when they find out they have an incurable disease. They're about to die. This guy realized, I'm dying. I've heard about this man. And as he heard and he saw Jesus praying, forgive them, he must have thought, there's something different about this man. He dies differently than other people. Maybe it's true. Somehow he came to the realization, rebuking his friend. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a gutsy prayer, isn't it? Everybody's hurling insults at him. The easiest thing would be to just chime in with him. Say, yeah, right, what he said. It's awfully difficult to go against the crowd and to rebuke those. But he did. And notice the assurance. He didn't say, Lord, remember me if you ever make it to that kingdom. I don't know who you are, but you know, if this is all true, would you remember me? He said, when you come into your kingdom. It was a prayer of faith. And Jesus said to you, well, I hope so. Well, maybe. Well, I don't know. Now, assuredly. I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. God wants you to have that same assurance of your salvation. Too many Christians walk around insecure. I'm saved. Well, maybe I'm not. Well, I'm saved. Well, maybe I'm not. He wants you to know. John wrote his epistle that we might know that we have eternal life. Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus didn't say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, you have to be baptized. 
and uh, in water, uh, according to our church dictates. Uh, then secondly, you have to show works. We have to see that you're really saved before I can do this. No, he didn't say that. Why? Well, first of all, there wasn't time. Secondly, you are not saved by any work, even the work of baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward transaction that comes by faith. You are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. So if you're to say, well, you're saved by faith and baptism, that's a work. You've added to it. And the minute you add to it, you insult God, who said it's by faith alone. You say, well, this baptism, is that of no effect? Of course not. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I have never met a Christian who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, who has not somewhere down the line said, I need to be baptized. The minute I meet a person who says, I don't want to be baptized. I'm a Christian. I don't want to do that. I really doubt if they've had a real encounter with God. Because if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And one of his commandments is to be baptized. And I just can't picture somebody who would be hardened against something so simple as that outward demonstration of the inward change of death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. But you're not saved by it. Assuredly, I say today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not, now, I want to let you know, you're going to die, and there's going to be thousands of years where you're going to sleep. Your soul will sleep. And you'll just be in an unconscious kind of a state. And then eventually, at the resurrection at the last day, you'll be conscious again. There are people who believe in that. The scripture does not teach soul sleep. The scripture teaches that you're very aware and conscious and awake after death. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'd rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, is to be present with the Lord. You know what that means? If, God forbid, you die this week and I get a phone call and I do your funeral, I'm going to look at that casket and I'm going to see your face in it and I'm going to say, he's not here. She's not here. I see the body. I see the shell, the tent, but they vacated the premises. But they're very much alive right now in the presence of Jesus Christ. They're very conscious and they're very, very happy. <laughs> now we'll mourn for you. We will. It's ludicrous to, oh, hey, hey, great. <laughs> We're glad he's gone. What a pain he was. We're going to mourn for you. The scripture teaches us that we sorrow, but we sorrow not like those who have no hope. And we're, if we weep, we're not going to weep for you. If you're in heaven, we're not going to, you know, you're, you're at the goal, man. You've crossed the finish line. You're where we, we want to be. We're not going to be crying for you. We're going to be weeping for us because we miss you but you're going to be in paradise. And I believe the last breath you take on earth, you'll take then your first breath in heaven. And probably your reaction, though the scripture doesn't say this, but I have a hunch that the, the first reaction of those who die as Christians on earth, and they, 
wake up in glory is has to be wow if I had only known that this joint looked this good I probably would have done things differently think of it in my father's house there are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you so I'm going to prepare a place for you Jesus said that he'd prepare a place for you 2,000 years ago well, if God created the earth in six days, and that's, it's beautiful. Imagine what heaven looks like if he's been preparing for 2,000 years that place for you. Wow! It must be awesome. It's taken him a long time to get it fixed up. I can't wait to check it out. What a promise. This simple act of faith. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's a declaration. That's justification. Was that man righteous? No, but he clung in faith to Jesus in his dying moments, and Jesus acquitted him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that great when Jesus can speak that to each one of us? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Heavenly Father, it's awesome. that undeserving, sinful men and women by one declaration of God can be secured in their salvation, can have at that very moment in time everlasting life. It certainly wasn't because this guy was good or had time to do anything deserving. It was just a simple declaration Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that is our hope, and we thank you for it. The hope of the everlasting kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that we would, well, as Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt where thieves do not break through and steal that our treasure would be in heaven that the thought of it would motivate the decisions we make here Lord I pray that if any are here tonight who have not made peace with God who are not sure that like the thief on the cross, they would turn to you. I think of these two men, Lord, equally as close to Jesus. One is saved and one is lost. How blessed on one hand, but how tragic on the other hand. And it was the choice that made all the difference. Lord, I wonder if you haven't brought somebody tonight invited by a friend or somebody who's wandered in or somebody who's listening on the radio who hasn't surrendered their lives to you. They've simply played a religious game, a facade. Maybe like that thief tonight, Lord, they would say, would you remember me, Lord? Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life and be my Savior, my Lord? 
If those thoughts express your heart and you're here tonight, you want to ask Jesus to forgive you and be your Lord, would you raise your hand before we close the service? And I'll pray for you. God bless you right up here. Anybody else? Lift your hand up and say, tonight I want to give my life to Jesus. I see your hand toward the back and your hand. Anybody else? A couple of you in the back. Father, thank you for that hope of everlasting life. And we do pray for each one of these who have indicated, I need Jesus in my life. And Lord, I pray that you would come inside and reign and rule. Fill with peace, joy, and the assurance of salvation as they cling tenaciously to you by faith. Wherever you are sitting, if you raised your hand, right now would you just say, speak these words to God himself wherever you are. Or if you're listening by radio, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. Wash them away. I make you my Lord, my, sa my Savior, and I want to be your disciple. Write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to follow you every day of my life on this earth, on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.